英語聞き流し世界名作リスニング英語テキストと MP3 ダウンロード他の物語はホームページからご利用いただけます 88thpp.com 88thpp.com Bread was shyly followed by milk. Her simple mind had made her prefer her cream dress to all the finery which the fairy suggested to her. She was really a model of humility. Bread was beginning to talk about the dresses of Tiltal, Light, and Mytel when the cat cut him short in a masterful voice. We shall see them in good time, she said. Stop chattering, listen to me, time presses, our future is at stake. They all looked at her with a bewildered air. They understood that it was a solemn moment, but the human language was still full of mystery to them. Sugar wriggled his long fingers as a sign of distress, bread patted his huge stomach, water lay on the floor and seemed to suffer from the most profound despair, and milk only had eyes for bread, who had been her friend for ages and ages. The cat, becoming impatient, continued her speech. The fairy has just said it, the end of this journey will, at the same time, mark the end of our lives. It is our business, therefore, to spin the journey out as long as possible and by every means in our power. Bread, who was afraid of being eaten as soon as he was no longer a man, hastened to express approval, but the dog, who was standing a little way off, pretending not to hear, began to growl deep down in his soul. He well knew what the cat was driving at, and, when Talet ended her speech with the words, we must at all costs prolong the journey and prevent Blue Bird from being found, even if it means endangering the lives of the children, the good dog, obeying only the promptings of his heart, leapt at the cat to bite her. Sugar, bread and fire flung themselves between them. Order. Order. Said Bread pompously. I'm in the chair at this meeting. Who made you chairman? Stormfire. Who asked you to interfere? Asked Water, whirling her wet hair over fire. Excuse me, said Sugar, shaking all over, in conciliatory tones. Excuse me. This is a serious moment. Let us talk things over in a friendly way. I quite agree with Sugar and the cat, said Bread, as though that ended the matter. This is ridiculous, said the dog, barking and showing his teeth. There is man and that's all. We have to obey him and do as he tells us. I recognize no one but him. Hurrah for man. Man forever. In life or death, all for man. Man is everything. But the cat's shrill voice rose above all the others. She was full of grudges against man and she wanted to make use of the short spell of humanity which she now enjoyed to avenge her whole race. All of us here present, she cried, animals, things, and elements, possess a soul which man does not yet know. That is why we retain a remnant of independence, but, if he finds the blue bird, he will know all, he will see all and we shall be completely at his mercy. Remember the time when we wandered at liberty upon the face of the earth. But, suddenly her face changed, her voice sank to a whisper and she hissed, look out. I hear the fairy and light coming. I need hardly tell you that light has taken sides with man and means to stand by him, she is our worst enemy. Be careful. But our friends had had no practice in trickery and, feeling themselves in the wrong, took up such ridiculous and uncomfortable attitudes that the fairy, the moment she appeared upon the threshold, exclaimed. What are you doing in that corner? You look like a pack of conspirators. Quite scared and thinking that the fairy had already guessed their wicked intentions, they fell upon their knees before her. Luckily for them, the fairy hardly gave a thought to what was passing through their little minds. She had come to explain the first part of the journey to the children and to tell each of the others what to do. Tiltle and Mytle stood hand in hand in front of her, looking a little frightened and a little awkward in their fine clothes. They stared at each other in childish admiration. 
The little girl was wearing a yellow silk frock embroidered with pink posies and covered with gold spangles. On her head was a lovely orange velvet cap, and a starched muslin tucker covered her little arms. Tyltle was dressed in a red jacket and blue knickerbockers, both of velvet, and of course he wore the wonderful little hat on his head. Delighted with the importance of his duty, undid the top of his robe, drew his scimitar and cut two slices out of his stomach. The fairy said to them, It is just possible that the blue bird is hiding at your grandparents in the land of memory, so you will go there first. But how shall we see them, if they are dead? asked Tottle. Then the good fairy explained that they would not be really dead until their grandchildren ceased to think of them. Men do not know this secret, she added. But, thanks to the diamond, you, Tottle, will see that the dead whom we remember live as happily as though they were not dead. Are you coming with us? asked the boy, turning to light, who stood in the doorway and lit up all the hall. No, said the fairy. Light must not look at the past. Her energies must be devoted to the future. The two children were starting on their way, when they discovered that they were very hungry. The fairy at once ordered bread to give them something to eat, and that big, fat fellow, delighted with the importance of his duty, undid the top of his robe, drew his scimitar and cut two slices out of his stomach. The children screamed with laughter. Tyla dropped his gloomy thoughts for a moment and begged for a bit of bread, and everybody struck up the farewell chorus. Sugar, who was very full of himself, also wanted to impress the company and, breaking off two of his fingers, handed them to the astonished children. As they were all moving towards the door, the fairy Baraloon stopped them. Not today, she said. The children must go alone. It would be indiscreet to accompany them, they are going to spend the evening with their late family. Come, be off. Goodbye, dear children, and mind that you are back in good time, it is extremely important. Sugar also wanted to impress the company and, breaking off two of his fingers, handed them to the astonished children. The two children took each other by the hand and, carrying the big cage, passed out of the hall, and their companions, at a sign from the fairy, filed in front of her to return to the palace. Our friend Tyla was the only one who did not answer to his name. The moment he heard the fairy say that the children were to go alone, he had made up his mind to go and look after them, whatever happened, and, while the others were saying goodbye, he hid behind the door. But the poor fellow had reckoned without the all-seeing eyes of the fairy bear alone. Tylo! She cried. Tylo! Here! And the poor dog, who had so long been used to obey, dared not resist the command and came, with his tail between his legs, to take his place among the others. He howled with despair when he saw his little master and mistress swallowed up in the great gold staircase. Dash! Chapter 3 the land of memory. The fairy Baraloon had told the children that the land of memory was not far off, but to reach it you had to go through a forest that was so dense and so old that your eyes could not see the tops of the trees. It was always shrouded in a heavy mist, and the children would certainly have lost their way, if the fairy had not said to them beforehand. It is straight ahead, and there is only one road. The ground was carpeted with flowers which were all alike, they were snow-white pansies and very pretty, but, as they never saw the sun, they had no scent. Those little flowers comforted the children, who felt extremely lonely. A great mysterious silence surrounded them, and they trembled a little with a very pleasant sense of fear which they had never felt before. Let's take Granny a bunch of flowers, said Mytel. That's a good idea. She will be pleased, cried Tyltel. And, as they walked along, the children gathered a beautiful white nosegay. The dear little things did not know that every pansy, which means a thought, that they picked brought them nearer to their grandparents and they soon saw before them a large oak with a notice board nailed to it. Here we are! cried the boy in triumph, as, climbing up on a root, he read. The Land of Memory.
They had arrived, but they turned to every side without seeing a thing. I can see nothing at all. Whimpered Mytel. I'm cold. I'm tired. I don't want to travel anymore. Tyltal, who was wholly wrapped up in his errand, lost his temper. Come, don't keep on crying just like water. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. He said. There. Look. Look. The fog is lifting. And, sure enough, the mist parted before their eyes, like veils torn by an invisible hand, the big trees faded away, everything vanished and, instead, there appeared a pretty little peasant's cottage, covered with creepers and standing in a little garden filled with flowers and with trees all over fruit. Everything vanished and, instead, there appeared a pretty little peasant's cottage. The children at once knew the deer cow in the orchard, the watchdog at the door, the blackbird in his wicker cage, and everything was steeped in a pale light and a warm and balmy air. Tyltle and Mytle stood amazed. So that was the land of memory. What lovely weather it was. And how nice it felt to be there. They at once made up their minds to come back often, now that they knew the way. But how great was their happiness when the last veil disappeared and they saw, at a few steps from them, Grandad and Granny sitting on a bench, sound asleep. They clapped their hands and called out gleefully. It's Grandad. It's Granny. There they are. There they are. But they were a little scared by this great piece of magic and dared not move from behind the tree, and they stood looking at the dear old couple, who woke up gently and slowly under their eyes. Then they heard Granny Till's trembling voice say, I have a notion that our grandchildren who are still alive are coming to see us today. And Gaffertal answered, They are certainly thinking of us, for I feel queer and I have pins and needles in my legs. I think they must be quite near, said Granny, for I see tears of joy dancing before my eyes and. Granny had not time to finish her sentence. The children were in her arms. What joy! What wild kisses and huggings! What a wonderful surprise! The happiness was too great for words. They laughed and tried to speak and kept on looking at one another with delighted eyes, it was so glorious and so unexpected to meet again like this. When the first excitement was over, they all began to talk at once. How tall and strong you've grown, Tiltal! said Granny. And Grandad cried. And Mytel! Just look at her! What pretty hair! What pretty eyes! And the children danced and clapped their hands and flung themselves by turns into the arms of one or the other. At last, they quieted down a little, and, with Mytel nestling against Grandad's chest and Toddle comfortably perched on Granny's knees, they began to talk of family affairs. How are Daddy and Mummytel? asked Granny. Quite well, Granny, said Tiltle. They were asleep when we went out. Granny gave them fresh kisses and said, My word, how pretty they are and how nice and clean. Why don't you come to see us oftener? It is months and months now that you have forgotten us and that we have seen nobody. We couldn't, Granny, said Tiltle, and today it's only because of the fairy. We are always here, said Granny Till, waiting for a visit from those who are alive. The last time you were here was on All Hallows. All Hallows? We didn't go out that day, for we both had colds. But you thought of us. And, every time you think of us, we wake up and see you again. Tyltle remembered that the fairy had told him this. He had not thought it possible then, but now, with his head on the heart of the dear granny whom he had missed so much, he began to understand things and he felt that his grandparents had not left him altogether. He asked. So you are not really dead? The old couple burst out laughing. When they exchanged their life on earth for another and a much nicer and more beautiful life, they had forgotten the word dead. What does that word dead mean? asked Gaffertil. Why, it means that one's no longer alive, said Tiltal. 
Grandad and Granny only shrugged their shoulders. How stupid the living are, when they speak of the others. Was all they said. And they went over their memories again, rejoicing in being able to chat. All old people love discussing old times. The future is finished, as far as they are concerned, and so they delight in the present and the past. But we are growing impatient, like Tiltal, and, instead of listening to them, we will follow our little friend's movements. He had jumped off Granny's knees and was poking about in every corner, delighted at finding all sorts of things which he knew and remembered. Nothing has changed, everything is in its old place. He cried. And, as he had not been to the old people's home for so long, everything struck him as much nicer, and he added, in the voice of one who knows, only everything is prettier. Hello, there's the clock with the big hand which I broke the point off and the hole which I made in the door, the day I found Grandad's gimlet. Yes, you've done some damage in your time. Said Grandad. And there's the plum tree which you were so fond of climbing, when I wasn't looking. Meantime, Tiltal was not forgetting his errand. You haven't the blue bird here by chance, I suppose? At the same moment, Mytel, lifting her head, saw a cage. Hello, there's the old blackbird. Does he still sing? As she spoke, the blackbird woke up and began to sing at the top of his voice. You see, said Granny, as soon as one thinks of him. Tiltal was simply amazed at what he saw but he's blue. He shouted. Why, that's the bird, the blue bird. He's blue, blue, blue as a blue glass marble. Will you give him to me? The grandparents gladly consented, and, full of triumph, Tavla went and fetched the cage which he had left by the tree. He took hold of the precious bird with the greatest of care, and it began to hop about in its new home. How pleased the fairy will be! said the boy, rejoicing at his conquest. And light too. Come along, said the grandparents. Come and look at the cow and the bees. As the old couple were beginning to toddle across the garden, the children suddenly asked if their little dead brothers and sisters were there too. At the same moment, seven little children, who, up to then, had been sleeping in the house, came tearing like mad into the garden. Tiltal and Mytel ran up to them. They all hustled and hugged one another and danced and whirled about and uttered screams of joy. Here they are, here they are, said Granny. As soon as you speak of them, they are there, the imps. Tiltal caught a little one by the hair. Hello, Piero. So we're going to fight again, as in the old days. And Robert. I say, Jean, what's become of your top? Madeline and Pierre add and Pauline. And here's Riquette. Mytel laughed. Riquette's still crawling on all fours. Tiltal noticed a little dog yapping around them. There's Kiki, whose tail I cut off with Pauline's scissors. He hasn't changed either. No, said Gaffertal in a voice of great importance, nothing changes here. But, suddenly, amid the general rejoicings, the old people stopped spellbound, they had heard the small voice of the clock indoors strike eight. The grandparents and grandchildren sat down to supper. How's this? They asked. It never strikes nowadays. That's because we no longer think of the time, said Granny. Was anyone thinking of the time? Yes, I was, said Tothel. So it's eight o'clock? Then I'm off, for I promised Light to be back before nine. He was going for the cage, but the others were too happy to let him run away so soon, it would be horrid to say goodbye like that. Granny had a good idea, she knew what a little glutton Tiltal was. It was just supper time and, as luck would have it, there was some capital cabbage soup and a beautiful plum tart. Well, said our hero, as I've got the bluebird. And cabbage soup is a thing you don't have every day. They all hurried and carried the table outside and laid it with a nice white tablecloth and put a plate for each, and, lastly Granny brought out the steaming soup tureen in state. 
The lamp was lit and the grandparents and grandchildren sat down to supper, jostling and elbowing one another and laughing and shouting with pleasure. Then, for a time, nothing was heard but the sound of the wooden spoons noisily clattering against the soup plates. How good it is! Oh, how good it is! shouted Tylehill, who was eating greedily. I want some more! 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 Come, come, a little more quiet, said Grandad. You're just as ill-behaved as ever, and you'll break your plate. Tylehill took no notice of the remark, stood up on his stool, caught hold of the tureen and dragged it towards him and upset it, and the hot soup trickled all over the table and down upon everybody's lap. The children yelled and screamed with pain. Granny was quite scared, and Grandad was furious. He dealt our friend Tylehill a tremendous box on the ear. Tylehill was staggered for a moment, and then he put his hand to his cheek with a look of rapture and exclaimed. Grandad, how good, how jolly. It was just like the slaps you used to give me when you were alive. I must give you a kiss for it. Everybody laughed. There's more where that came from, if you like them. Said Grandad, grumpily. But he was touched, all the same, and turned to wipe a tear from his eyes. Goodness! Cried Tautel, starting up. There's half past eight striking. Mytel, we've only just got time. Granny in vain implored them to stay a few minutes longer. No, we can't possibly, said Tylehill firmly, I promise light. And he hurried to take up the precious cage. Goodbye, Grandad. Goodbye, Granny. Goodbye, brothers and sisters, Puro, Robert, Pauline, Madeline, Riquet and you, too, Kiki. We can't stay. Don't cry, Granny, we will come back often. Poor old Grandad was very much upset and complained lustily. Gracious me, how tiresome the living are, with all their fuss and excitement. Tyldall tried to console him and again promised to come back very often. Come back every day, said Granny. It is our only pleasure, and it's such a treat for us when your thoughts pay us a visit. Goodbye. Goodbye. Cried the brothers and sisters in chorus. Come back very soon. Bring us some barley sugar. There were more kisses, all waved their handkerchiefs, all shouted a last goodbye but the figures began to fade away, the little voices could no longer be heard, the two children were once more wrapped in mist, and the old forest covered them with its great dark mantle. I'm so frightened. Whimpered Mytel. Give me your hand, little brother. I'm so frightened. Tyldall was shaking too, but it was his duty to try and comfort and console his sister. Hush! He said. Remember that we are bringing back the blue bird. As he spoke, a thin ray of light pierced the gloom, and the little boy hurried towards it. He was holding his cage tight in his arms, and the first thing he did was to look at his bird. Alas and alack, what a disappointment awaited him. The beautiful blue bird of the land of memory had turned quite black. Stare at it as hard as Toddle might, the bird was black. Oh, how he knew the old blackbird that used to sing in its wicker prison, in the old days, at the door of the house. What had happened? How painful it was! And how cruel life seemed to him just then! He had started on his journey with such zest and delight that he had not thought for a moment of the difficulties and dangers. Full of confidence, pluck and kindness, he had marched off, certain of finding the beautiful blue bird which would bring happiness to the fairy's little girl. And now all his hopes were shattered. For the first time, our poor friend understood the trials, the vexations and the obstacles that awaited him. Alas, was he attempting an impossible thing? Was the fairy making fun of him? Would he ever find the blue bird? all his courage seemed to be leaving him. To add to his misfortunes, he could not find the straight road by which he had come. There was not a single white pansy on the ground, and he began to cry. Luckily, our little friends were not to remain in trouble long. 
the fairy had promised that light would watch over them. The first trial was over, and, just as outside the old people's house a little while ago, the mist now suddenly lifted. But, instead of disclosing a peaceful picture, a gentle, homely scene, it revealed a marvelous temple, with a blinding glare streaming from it. On the threshold stood light, fair and beautiful in her diamond-colored dress. She smiled when Tyldall told her of his first failure. She knew what the little ones were seeking, she knew everything. For light surrounds all mortals with her love, though none of them is fond enough of her ever to receive her thoroughly and thus to learn all the secrets of truth. Now, for the first time, thanks to the diamond which the fairy had given to the boy, she was going to try and conquer a human soul. Do not be sad, she said to the children. Are you not pleased to have seen your grandparents? Is that not enough happiness for one day? Are you not glad to have restored the old blackbird to life? Listen to him singing. For the old blackbird was singing with might and main, and his little yellow eyes sparkled with pleasure as he hopped about his big cage. As you look for the blue bird, dear children, accustom yourselves to love the grey birds which you find on your way. She nodded her fair head gravely, and it was quite clear that she knew where the blue bird was. But life is often full of beautiful mysteries, which we must respect, lest we should destroy them, and, if Light had told the children where the blue bird was, well, they would never have found him. I will tell you why at the end of this story. And now let us leave our little friends to sleep on beautiful white clouds under Light's watchful care. Dash. Chapter 4. The Palace of Night. Sometime after, the children and their friends met at the first dawn to go to the Palace of Night, where they hoped to find the blue bird. Several of the party failed to answer to their names when the roll was called. Milk, for whom any sort of excitement was bad, was keeping her room. Water sent an excuse, she was accustomed always to travel in a bed of moss, was already half-dead with fatigue and was afraid of falling ill. As for light, she had been on bad terms with night since the world began, and fire, as a relation, shared her dislike. Light kissed the children and told Tyler the way, for it was his business to lead the expedition, and the little band set out upon its road. You can imagine dear Tyler trotting ahead, on his hind legs, like a little man, with his nose in the air, his tongue dangling down his chin, his front paws folded across his chest. He fidgets, sniffs about, runs up and down, covering twice the ground without minding how tired it makes him. He is so full of his own importance that he disdains the temptations on his path, he neglects the rubbish heaps, pays no attention to anything he sees and cuts all his old friends. Poor Tylo. He was so delighted to become a man, and yet he was no happier than before. Of course, life was the same to him, because his nature had remained unchanged. What was the use of his being a man, if he continued to feel and think like a dog? In fact, his troubles were increased a hundredfold by the sense of responsibility that now weighed upon him. Ah! He said, with a sigh, for he was joining blindly in his little god's search, without for a moment reflecting that the end of the journey would mean the end of his life. Ah! He said, if I got hold of that rascal of a blue bird, trust me, I wouldn't touch him even with the tip of my tongue, not if he were as plump and sweet as a quail. Bread followed solemnly, carrying the cage, the two children came next, and Sugar brought up the rear. But where was the cat? To discover the reason of her absence, we must go a little way back and read her thoughts. At the time when Tylet called a meeting of the animals and things in the fairy's hall, she was contemplating a great plot which would aim at prolonging the journey, but she had reckoned without the stupidity of her hearers. The idiots, she thought, have very nearly spoiled the whole thing by foolishly throwing themselves at the fairy's feet, as though they were guilty of a crime. It is better to rely upon oneself alone. In my cat life, all our training is founded on suspicion, I can see that it is just the same in the life of men. Those who confide in others are only betrayed, 
it is better to keep silent and to be treacherous oneself. The road to the palace of night was rather long and rather dangerous. As you see, my dear little readers, the cat was in the same position as the dog, she had not changed her soul and was simply continuing her former existence, but, of course, she was very wicked, whereas our dear Tylo was, if anything, too good. Tylet, therefore, resolved to act on her own account and went, before daybreak, to call on Knight, who was an old friend of hers. The road to the palace of Knight was rather long and rather dangerous. It had precipices on either side of it, you had to climb up and climb down and then climb up again among high rocks that always seemed waiting to crush the passers-by. At last, you came to the edge of a dark circle, and there you had to go down thousands of steps to reach the black marble underground palace in which Knight lived. The cat, who had often been there before, raced along the road, light as a feather. Her cloak, borne on the wind, streamed like a banner behind her, the plume in her hat fluttered gracefully, and her little grey kid boots hardly touched the ground. She soon reached her destination and, in a few bounds, came to the great hall where Knight was. It was really a wonderful sight. Knight, stately and grand as a queen, reclined upon her throne. She slept, and not a glimmer, not a star twinkled around her. But we know that the knight has no secrets for cats and that their eyes have the power of piercing the darkness. So Tylet saw night as though it were broad daylight. Before waking her, she cast a loving glance at that motherly and familiar face. It was white and silvery as the moon, and its unbending features inspired both fear and admiration. Knight's figure, which was half visible through her long black veils, was as beautiful as that of a Greek statue. She had long arms and a pair of enormous wings, now furled in sleep, came from her shoulders to her feet and gave her a look of majesty beyond compare. Still, in spite of her affection for her best of friends, Tylet did not waste too much time in gazing at her, it was a critical moment, and time was short. Tired and jaded and overcome with anguish, she sank upon the steps of the throne and mewed, plaintively. It is I, Mother Knight. I am worn out. Knight sat up, all quivering. Her immense wings beat around her, and she questioned. Tylet in a trembling voice. Knight is of an anxious nature and easily alarmed. Her beauty, built up of peace and repose, possesses the secret of silence, which life is constantly disturbing, a star shooting through the sky, a leaf falling to the ground, the hoot of an owl, a mere nothing is enough to tear the black velvet pall which she spreads over the earth each evening. The cat, therefore, had not finished speaking, when Knight sat up, all quivering. Her immense wings beat around her, and she questioned Tylet in a trembling voice. As soon as she had learned the danger that threatened her, she began to lament her fate. What? A man's son coming to her palace. And, perhaps, with the help of the magic diamond, discovering her secrets. What should she do? What would become of her? How could she defend herself? And, forgetting that she was sinning against silence, her own particular god, Knight began to utter piercing screams. It was true that falling into such a commotion was hardly likely to help her find a cure for her troubles. Luckily for her, Tylet, who was accustomed to the annoyances and worries of human life, was better armed. She had worked out her plan when going ahead of the children, and she was hoping to persuade Knight to adopt it. She explained this plan to her in a few words. I see only one thing for it, Mother Knight, as they are children, we must give them such a fright that they will not dare to insist on opening the great door at the back of the hall behind which the birds of the moon live and generally the blue bird too. The secrets of the other caverns will be sure to scare them. The hope of our safety lies in the terror which you will make them feel. There was clearly no other course to take. But Knight had not time to reply, for she heard a sound. Then her beautiful features contracted, her wings spread out angrily, and everything in her attitude told Tylet that Knight approved of her plan. Here they are. 
cried the cat. The little band came marching down the steps of Knight's gloomy staircase. Tylo pranced bravely in front, whereas Tylo looked around him with an anxious glance. He certainly found nothing to comfort him. It was all very magnificent, but very terrifying. Picture a huge and wonderful black marble hall, of a stern and tomb-like splendor. There is no ceiling visible, and the ebony pillars that surround the amphitheater shoot up to the sky. It is only when you lift your eyes up there that you catch the faint light falling from the stars. Everywhere, the thickest darkness reigns. Two restless flames, no more, flicker on either side of night's throne, before a monumental door of brass. Bronze doors show through the pillars to the right and left. The cat rushed up to the children. This way, little master, this way. I have told Knight, and she is delighted to see you. Tylet's soft voice and smile made Tylet feel himself again, and he walked up to the throne with a bold and confident step, saying. Good day, Mrs. Knight. Knight was offended by the word, good day, which reminded her of her eternal enemy light, and answered dryly. Good day? I am not used to that. You might say, good night, or, at least, good evening. Our hero was not prepared to quarrel. He felt very small in the presence of that stately lady. He quickly begged her pardon, as nicely as he could, and very gently asked her leave to look for the blue bird in her palace. I have never seen him, he is not here! exclaimed Knight, flapping her great wings to frighten the boy. But, when he insisted and gave no sign of fear, she herself began to dread the diamond, which, by lighting up her darkness, would completely destroy her power, and she thought it better to pretend to yield to an impulse of generosity and at once to point to the big key that lay on the steps of the throne. Without a moment's hesitation, Tavl seized hold of it and ran to the first door of the hall. Everybody shook with fright. Brid's teeth chattered in his head. Sugar, who was standing some way off, moaned with mortal anguish, Mital howled. Where is Sugar? I want to go home. Meanwhile, Tyltal, pale and resolute, was trying to open the door, while Knight's grave voice, rising above the din, proclaimed the first danger. It's the ghosts. Oh, dear! thought Tyltal. I have never seen a ghost, it must be awful. The faithful Tylo, by his side, was panting with all his might, for dogs hate anything uncanny. At last, the key grated in the lock. Silence reigned as dense and heavy as the darkness. No one dared draw a breath. Then the door opened, and, in a moment, the gloom was filled with white figures running in every direction. Some lengthened out right up to the sky, others twined themselves round the pillars, others wriggled ever so fast along the ground. They were something like men, but it was impossible to distinguish their features, the eye could not catch them. The moment you looked at them, they turned into a white mist. Tyltle did his best to chase them, for Mrs. Knight kept to the plan contrived by the cat and pretended to be frightened. She had been the ghost's friend for hundreds and hundreds of years and had only to say a word to drive them in again, but she was careful to do nothing of the sort and, flapping her wings like mad, she called upon all her gods and screamed. Drive them away! Drive them away! Help! Help! But the poor ghosts, who hardly ever come out now that man no longer believes in them, were much too happy at taking a breath of air, and, had it not been that they were afraid of Tylo, who tried to bite their legs, they would never have been put back indoors. Oof! gasped the dog, when the door was shut at last. I have strong teeth, goodness knows, but chaps like those I never saw before. When you bite them, you'd think their legs were made of cotton. By this time, Tyltle was making for the second door and asking. What's behind this one? Knight made a gesture as though to put him off. Did the obstinate little fellow really want to see everything? Must I be careful when I open it? asked Tyltle. No, said Knight, it is not worth while. It's the sicknesses.
they are very quiet, the poor little things. Man, for some time, has been waging such war upon them. Open and see for yourself. Tiltle threw the door wide open and stood speechless with astonishment, there was nothing to be seen. He was just about to close the door again, when he was hustled aside by a little body in a dressing gown and a cotton nightcap, who began to frisk about the hall, wagging her head and stopping every minute to cough, sneeze and blow her nose, and to pull on her slippers, which were too big for her and kept dropping off her feet. Sugar, bread and Toddle were no longer frightened and began to laugh like anything. But they had no sooner come near the little person in the cotton nightcap than they themselves began to cough and sneeze. It's the least important of the sicknesses, said Knight. It's cold in the head. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Thought Sugar. If my nose keeps on running like this, I'm done for, I shall melt. Wagging her head and stopping every minute to cough, sneeze and blow her nose. Poor Sugar. He did not know where to hide himself. He had become very much attached to life since the journey began for he had fallen over head and ears in love with water. And yet this love caused him the greatest worry. Miss Water was a tremendous flirt, expected a lot of attention and was not particular with whom she mixed, but mixing too much with water was an expensive luxury, as poor Sugar found to his cost, for, at every kiss he gave her, he left a bit of himself behind, until he began to tremble for his life. When he suddenly found himself attacked by cold in the head, he would have had to fly from the palace, but for the timely aid of our dear Tylo, who ran after the little minx and drove her back to her cavern, amidst the laughter of Tylo and Mytel, who thought gleefully that, so far, the trial had not been very terrible. The boy, therefore, ran to the next door with still greater courage. Take care! cried Knight, in a dreadful voice. It's the worse. They are more powerful than ever. I daren't think what would happen, if one of them broke loose. Stand ready, all of you, to push back the door. Knight had not finished uttering her warnings, when the plucky little fellow repented his rashness. He tried in vain to shut the door which he had opened, an invincible force was pushing it from the other side, streams of blood flowed through the cracks, flames shot forth, shouts, oaths and groans mingled with the roar of cannon and the rattle of musketry. Everybody in the palace of night was running about in wild confusion. Bread and sugar tried to take to flight, but could not find the way out, and they now came back to Tylewell and put their shoulders to the door with despairing force. The cat pretended to be anxious, while secretly rejoicing. This may be the end of it, she said, curling her whiskers. They won't dare to go on after this. Dear Tyla made superhuman efforts to help his little master, while Mytel stood crying in a corner. At last, our hero gave a shout of triumph. Hurrah! They're giving way! Victory! Victory! The door is shut! At the same time, he dropped on the steps, utterly exhausted, dabbing his forehead with his poor little hands which shook with terror. Well? asked Knight, harshly. Have you had enough? Did you see them? Yes, yes. Replied the little fellow, sobbing. They are hideous and awful. I don't think they have the blue bird. You may be sure they haven't, answered Knight, angrily. If they had, they would eat him at once. You see there is nothing to be done. Tyltle drew himself up proudly. I must see everything, he declared. Light said so. It's an easy thing to say, retorted Knight, when one's afraid and stays at home. Let us go to the next door, said Tyltle, resolutely. What's in here? This is where I keep the shades and the terrors. Tyltle reflected for a minute. As far as shades go, he thought, Mrs. Knight is poking fun at me. It's more than an hour since I've seen anything but shade in this house of hers, and I shall be very glad to see daylight again. As for the terrors, if they are anything like the ghosts, we shall have another good joke. Our friend went to the door and opened it, 
before his companions had time to protest. For that matter, they were all sitting on the floor, exhausted with the last fright, and they looked at one another in astonishment, glad to find themselves alive after such a scare. Meanwhile, Tauchel threw back the door and nothing came out. There's no one there. He said. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Look out. Said Knight, who was still shamming fright. She was simply furious. She had hoped to make a great impression with her terrors, and, lo and behold the wretches, who had so long been snubbed by man, were afraid of him. She encouraged them with kind words and succeeded in coaxing out a few tall figures covered with grey veils. They began to run all around the hall until, hearing the children laugh, they were seized with fear and rushed indoors again. The attempt had failed, as far as night was concerned, and the dread hour was about to strike. Already, Tyltle was moving towards the big door at the end of the hall. A few last words took place between them. Do not open that one, said Knight, in awestruck tones. Why not? Because it's not allowed. Then it's here that the blue bird is hidden. Go no farther, do not tempt fate, do not open that door. But why? Again asked Tyltle, obstinately. Thereupon, Knight, irritated by his persistency, flew into a rage, hurled the most terrible threats at him, and ended by saying, Not one of those who have opened it, were it but by a hair's breadth, has ever returned alive to the light of day. It means certain death, and all the horrors, all the terrors, all the fears of which men speak on earth are as nothing compared with those which await you if you insist on touching that door. Don't do it, Master dear," said Bread, with chattering teeth. Don't do it. Take pity on us. I implore you on my knees. You are sacrificing the lives of all of us, mewed the cat. I won't. I shan't. Sobbed Mytel. Pity. Pity. Wine sugar, wringing his fingers. All of them were weeping and crying, all of them crowded round Tavl. Dear Tylo alone, who respected his little master's wishes, dared not speak a word, though he fully believed that his last hour had come. Two big tears rolled down his cheeks, and he licked Tavl's hands in despair. It was really a most touching scene, and for a moment, our hero hesitated. His heart beat wildly, his throat was parched with anguish, he tried to speak and could not get out a sound. Besides, he did not wish to show weakness in the presence of his hapless companions. If I have not the strength to fulfill my task, he said to himself, who will fulfill it? If my friends behold my distress, it is all up with me, they will not let me go through with my mission and I shall never find the blue bird. At this thought, the boy's heart leapt within his breast and all his generous nature rose in rebellion. It would never do to be, perhaps, within arm's length of happiness and not to try for it, at the risk of dying in the attempt, to try for it and hand it over at last to all mankind. That settled it. Tyler resolved to sacrifice himself. Like a true hero, he brandished the heavy golden key and cried. I must open the door. He ran up to the great door, with Tylo panning by his side. The poor dog was half dead with fright, but his pride and his devotion to Tylo obliged him to smother his fears. I shall stay, he said to his master, I'm not afraid. I shall stay with my little god. In the meantime, all the others had fled. Bread was crumbling to bits behind a pillar, Sugar was melting in a corner with Mytel in his arms, Knight and the cat, both shaking with fury, kept to the far end of the hall. A wonderful garden lay before him. A dream garden filled with flowers that shone like stars. Then Tyltle gave Tylo a last kiss, pressed him to his heart and, with never a tremble, put the key in the lock. Yells of terror came from all the corners of the hall, where the runaways had taken shelter, while the two leaves of the great door opened by magic in front of our little friend, who was struck dumb with admiration and delight. What an exquisite surprise! A wonderful garden lay before him, 
a dream garden filled with flowers that shone like stars, waterfalls that came rushing from the sky and trees which the moon had clothed in silver. And then there was something whirling like a blue cloud among the clusters of roses. Tylevel rubbed his eyes, he could not believe his senses. He waited, looked again, and then dashed into the garden, shouting like mad. Come quickly. Come quickly. They are here. We have them at last. Millions of bluebirds. Thousands of millions. Come, Mytil. Come, Tylo. Come, all. Help me. You can catch them by handfuls. Reassured at last, his friends came running up and all darted in among the birds, seeing who could catch the most. I've caught seven already. Cried Mytil. I can't hold them. Nor can I. Said Tylethal. I have too many of them. They're escaping from my arms. Tylo has some too. Let us go out, let us go. Light is waiting for us. How pleased she will be. This way, this way. And they all danced and scampered away in their glee, singing songs of triumph as they went. Knight and the cat, who had not shared in the general rejoicing, crept back anxiously to the great door, and Knight whimpered. Haven't they got him? No, said the cat, who saw the real blue bird perched high up on a moonbeam. They could not reach him, he kept too high. Our friends in all haste ran up the numberless stairs between them and the daylight. Each of them hugged the birds which he had captured, never dreaming that every step which brought them nearer to the light was fatal to the poor things, so that, by the time they came to the top of the staircase, they were carrying nothing but dead birds. Light was waiting for them anxiously. Well, have you caught him? She asked. Yes, yes. Said Tylethal. Lots of them. There are thousands. Look. As he spoke, he held out the dear birds to her and saw, to his dismay, that they were nothing more than lifeless corpses, their poor little wings were broken and their heads drooped sadly from their necks. The boy, in his despair, turned to his companions. Alas, they too were hugging nothing but dead birds. Then Tylethal threw himself sobbing into Light's arms. Once more, all his hopes were dashed to the ground. Do not cry, my child, said Light. You did not catch the one that is able to live in broad daylight. We shall find him yet. Of course, we shall find him, said Bread and Sugar, with one voice. They were great boobies, both of them, but they wanted to console the boy. As for friend Tylo, he was so much put out that he forgot his dignity for a moment and, looking at the dead birds, exclaimed. Are they good to eat, I wonder? The party set out to walk back and sleep in the Temple of Light. It was a melancholy journey, all regretted the peace of home and felt inclined to blame Tylo for his one of caution. Sugar edged up to bread and whispered in his ear. Don't you think, Mr. Chairman, that all this excitement is very useless? And bread, who felt flattered at receiving so much attention, answered, pompously. Never you fear, my dear fellow, I shall put all this right. Life would be unbearable if we had to listen to all the whimsies of that little madcap. Tomorrow we shall stay in bed. They forgot that, but for the boy at whom they were sneering, they would never have been alive at all, and that, if he had suddenly told Bread that he must go back to his pan to be eaten and sugar that he was to be cut into small lumps to sweeten Daddydle's coffee and Mummydle's syrups, they would have thrown themselves at their benefactor's feet and begged for mercy. In fact, they were incapable of appreciating their good luck until they were brought face to face with bad. Poor things! The fairy Baraloon, when making them a present of their human life, ought to have thrown in a little wisdom. They were not so much to blame. Of course, they were only following man's example. Given the power of speaking, they jabbered, knowing how to judge, they condemned, able to feel, they complained. They had hearts which increased their sense of fear, without adding to their happiness. As to their brains, which could easily have arranged all the rest, 
they made so little of them that they had already grown quite rusty, and, if you could have opened their heads and looked at the works of their life inside, you would have seen the poor brains, which were their most precious possession, jumping about at every movement they made and rattling in their empty skulls like dry peas in a pod. Fortunately, Light, thanks to her wonderful insight, knew all about their state of mind. She determined, therefore, to employ the elements and things no more than she was obliged to. They are useful, she thought, to feed the children and amuse them on the way, but they must have no further share in the trials, because they have neither courage nor conviction. Meanwhile, the party walked on, the road widened out and became resplendent, and, at the end, the temple of light stood on a crystal height, shedding its beams around. The tired children made the dog carry them pick a back by turns, and they were almost asleep when they reached the shining steps. 英語聞き流し世界名作リスニング英語テキストとmp3ダウンロード他の物語はホームページからご利用いただけます。88thpp.com88thpp.com